welcome to Viral, a podcast about the history and current practice of public health and the people who work behind the scenes to keep us safe and healthy. I'm Lindsay Grove. And I'm Quinn Lundquist. Art and science, left brain and right brain, analytics and emotion. Science gives us explanations, but art gives those explanations meaning. Naturally, these disciplines overlap and have overlapped for as long as both have existed. If we go back to ancient Greece, the word for art was techne. It also described craftsmanship and the derivation for modern words like technique and technology, words we apply to both scientific and artistic practices. Leonardo da Vinci is a really good example of a person who embodied the mutually beneficial relationship between art and science, and I think we might hear a little bit more about him later. His works were constantly informed by scientific investigation, and often he was able to create images of the human form through the study of anatomy and physiology. The Dutch painter Johannes Vermeer His famous painting, The Astronomer, is striking for its use of light, texture, and depiction of humanity's obsession with investigation. One of my favorite artist-scientists is named Ernst Haeckel, whose collection of highly intricate illustrations based on patterns and creatures in the natural world called Art Forms in Nature has a prominent place on my bookshelf and in my heart. Seriously, listeners, check it out. You will not regret it. Well, like you mentioned, um, when I think of the marriage of art and science, I definitely think of Leonardo da Vinci Mm -hmm. and his magnificent drawings of mathematical perfection and engineering innovations. He studied the human and animal form with an artistic eye and a scientific mind. Recently, Walter Isaacson just published a biography of da Vinci, which was actually featured on NPR's On Point. And he talked about how da Vinci didn't see art and science as separate fields, but as an inseparable means to explore and explain creativity, nature, and life. So this hits really close to home for me because I actually started out in the arts and then, of course, ended up in science. Uh, I've never felt completely at home in either world, so it's reassuring to find some space that occupies both. I think in this tech-focused world, there's many opportunities to blur the lines between art and science to help us better understand complex concepts and move us towards even greater solutions. When we talk about scientific communication, I think and I believe that art is the missing piece. We need artistic scientists and scientific artists. The natural bridge is our creativity in asking and answering nature's questions. That was really beautifully put. So you've probably all heard of Gray's Anatomy, the famous textbook of human anatomy illustrated by Henry Van Dyke Carter. And uh, I think it's a show. I'm just kidding. I know it's a show. I was just saying, like, where have you been? But I want to profile a different medical illustrator today. So I want to discuss a man named Frank Netter. He was born in 1909 in New York City and grew up wanting to be an artist. He went to college to study art and began a commercial art career, even being published in the Saturday Evening Post 
and the New York Times as an illustrator. However, sadly, his family didn't approve of his career, and he decided to go to medical school. Womp womp. But this was also in the middle of the Great Depression, so starting a new career wasn't especially easy, even for a doctor. And it's hard to have a practice when a lot of your patients are unable to pay. Mm. So he went back to his first love, art, while still working as a physician. During World War II, he served as an officer in the Army Medical Corps, and he illustrated a bunch of their training manuals. When the war was over, he moved back to New York and settled in Long Island. Soon, word got around that he was talented, and pharmaceutical companies began seeking Netter to help sell their products. He then began working for Seba Pharmaceutical Company, who commissioned an illustration of the heart to help doctors promote a drug called Digitalis a derivative of the foxglove plant that can be used to treat arrhythmias. Then, his medical illustration career really took off. In all, he created over 4,000 illustrations that have been used in textbooks and teaching aids for decades. His Atlas of Human Anatomy and other works like it have become a staple of medical education. However, He often said that doctors mostly thought of him as an artist, and artists mostly thought of him as a doctor, and he was unable to really feel at home in either world. Totally can relate. Yeah. So, uh, today, we are going to talk to, well, we did talk to, Eliza Wolfson, Dr. Eliza Wolfson, professional scientific illustrator. She and takes badass. and badass. She takes cutting edge science and turns it into illustrations, infographics, animations, all that kind of cool stuff. She works with researchers to clearly visualize complicated concepts like cellular processes that aren't easily seen or photographed, and new technologies that would otherwise be obscured by jargon. We had a really good chat with her about all of this stuff and how illustrating the microbial world compares to describing public health systems concepts in more creative ways. I don't know if we found the answer to our, our questions about how we can um, <laughs> describe public health uh, better, but it was still it was still good to talk to her. Yeah, and I mean, she had a lot of really complicated biological processes that, you know, um, are just astounding to be able to put them into a visual um, format. So Yeah. And she's and, just all around really cool and has some little cute little scientific comics, which are great. Yeah. Um, so uh, we will post her uh, website in the show notes, and you can also follow her on, um, on Twitter, and she has a pretty great handle. She's a delight. And she was a delight. So... Yeah, um, enjoy our interview, and if you are interested or create um, visuals or have a a favorite visual, um, you could tweet it at us, you could email it to us, show us, you know. I'm sure everyone out there has, like, a favorite infographic that they like to use. Oh, yeah. You know, I can think of a few. some infographics. 
they're 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 like the hot new thing right now, but really they've been around forever. Yeah, exactly. And right. uh, yeah, I think it's cool, and I think we need as scientists we need to be able to work with our artists better to explain the meaning of their work and mm-hmm. why you know not just why it's important but how it works because not everyone is the type of learner that can um read a, a scientific paper and be like mm, yes light bulb right Bing. yeah and if you want to talk about you know issues with accessibility you know, uh, creating mm-hmm. visual schemas is a great way to meet the needs of, you know, visual learners um, and, yeah, to give access um, to non-scientific populations to really great scientific information. So Yeah. So shall we go to the interview? Yes, please. All right. Okay, so today on our show, we have Dr. Eliza Wolfson, a scientific illustrator. She received her bachelor's and PhD at the University of Edinburgh and has nearly 10 years of lab research experience, including getting to investigate how E. coli and salmonella manipulate our cells to live on or in them. She also illustrates biological and scientific concepts for a variety of audiences, including the Microbiology Society's Multicolored Microbiomes, a coloring book full of bacteria, fungi, and viruses for you to fill in and discover the invisible world around us. I am probably going to put that on my Christmas list this year. Um, Anyways, welcome to Viral Podcast. My name is Quinn. And I'm Lindsay. And I'm Liza. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome. Yes, Um, welcome. First of all, we're catching you at the the tail end of um, October, which um, if you're a fan of artists like I am, uh, meant Inktober, and I noticed that you participated. Um, what was that like, just having to, like, create something every day? Um, did you find that challenging or fun, or are you a little relaxed that you're not drawing every day anymore? <laughs> um, I I really enjoyed it this year. I did it last year, but I did it wrong. Last year, I kind of did it all in one spurt. I didn't do it every day like you're supposed to, and actually, it was really <laughs> nice to do it every day apart from, you know, if you had a deadline or something. But um, generally, I could do it in a sort of relaxed sort of way and think of ideas fairly organically. Um, when I came to difficulty, I was lucky because I was uh, hosting the I Am Sci Art thing, and they gave me loads of ideas. Yeah, I followed that. I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah, so um, if anyone who's listening is not familiar, um, you can do a search for hashtag Inktober, and I think the, for, was it hashtag SciArt, mm. S-C-I-A-R-T for you, the one that the communications um, thing that was going on? Um, I was, uh, I did hashtag SciArt, hashtag microbiology, hashtag bacteria. I was very hashtag. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, cool. Yeah. I, I, you know, I really love following artists and it's always cool to see what they come up with on like. A day-to-day basis and follow them. Well, through I just it. love drawing cartoons. Yeah, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a great excuse to draw cartoons so, every day. What exactly, for someone who has no idea, what does a scientific illustrator mm. do? Uh, quite a few things, I would say. Um, so there's there's a range. It, it ranges from being asked to depict a, a one particular concept uh, or a number of concepts in one image 
to um, clarifying a process in a diagram. Um, and I also end up um, creating characters for outreach. So, you know, sometimes people need cartoons to make um, a, a, a subject more approachable. So, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, Sally the Salmonella, for example. Yes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Um, now, was there a specific moment in your life where you saw your creative skills and your education and microbiology um, merging into a career where you could use both? I'm, I'm still waiting for one moment. I've kind of always hoped that that would be the case um, because I've always been interested in science. And I've always been interested in art. and I've never stopped drawing, but I'm still kind of waiting to see because careers aren't fixed. So, sure. I mean, yeah. who knows what's going to happen, but at the moment it's going great and and so it's it's kind of like a an everyday. Yeah, this is working for my career right now, and we'll see if it carries on. I'm trying to be open-minded about where I go and what I do. I just want to be useful. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's great. Um, one of the things that's been a recurring theme on our show is uh, the importance of being able to communicate scientific mm -hmm. concepts to non-scientific audiences. Um, in a way that gets the message across, but in a in a um, memorable fashion too, so that it's not that they just understand a concept, but that they figure out how it works into their life and what they can do with that information. Um, so I think it's uh, a field and, and a subfield that is underrated. Yeah, um, and I think that a lot of times creativity gets lost in, in science sometimes, even though science really is about finding creative ways to answer questions, right? Yeah. So we have so many people that are visual learners anyway. So I think that, you know, having, having better scientific illustrations and incorporating art is a great way to reach people that may not necessarily consider themselves scientists, but maybe they're interested in the topic. Mm -hmm. And they can better understand it. Uh, I mean, I've never, oh, no, go on, go on. I've never seen a phospholipid bilayer with my naked eyes, but I can picture what it looks like based on the diagrams in my biology textbooks. And, you know, that means a lot to me because somebody did that and they, they didn't just go from someone discovering it to having it visually depicted, um, you know, in a, in a second, they, there was a process involved of working with those who have done the research and those who have done the theorizing and who those who have done the, um, the microscope work and, and those who can actually create that, that vision. Well, um, the cool thing with that though, and what you're saying is that it feeds back both ways. Um, because when you work with someone who's, um, visualizing what you're doing, or you're visualizing your own scientific work, it kind of makes you think about your work in a different way. You have to put it into a physical space. And so it feeds back into your ideas. The creativity of drawing then feeds back into the creativity of your ideas. You then go, oh, but how would this fit there? No, it, this can't be next to this because it just doesn't fit unless it's like this. You know, mm -hmm. sort of, it makes you think in that way. Which, when it's in your head yeah. alone, yeah, then it really, doesn't. Yeah. Right. And, like, thinking of, of ways and metaphors um, to, to describe things on the m microbiological scale, like how an enzyme 
fits into, you know, proteins to do various things like a lock and key. And even though, you know, it doesn't actually look like a physical lock and a physical key, we can kind of go, okay, that's how that works. Um, and, and then go from there, but it, it helps to have those, those bridges. Yeah. So I'd say analogy is really key for what I do actually. Mm -hmm. Um, often I, I take, that that's that's how I kind of turn something into a picture. I think, well, what is this like? And then I build from yeah. there. Yeah, and that kind of leads into our next question. So we talked about analogies. Um, what are some other ways that you take, you know, something like a pathway or a complicated scientific idea and visually describe it in a way that's not only accurate, but something we can remember and learn from? Um, well, analogy being my main tool, uh, beyond that, mm -hmm. I would say, um, distilling the message. So looking at a process and, and seeing what's really fundamental to that, uh, and, and focusing on that because it's the principle mm -hmm. of the thing. Often the detail, I mean, the devil is in the detail. So you've got to have the detail there, sure. but it's not the, like sometimes to help people understand what you're talking about. It's the, it's all about the emphasis and the focus and, and getting the yeah. eye, leading the eye to that place visually. Mm -hmm. And in a similar vein, um, I work in public health policy. And one of the things that we, we try to teach people and who, who do the public health policy work is that when you take a, a study that maybe had thousands of participants and had like a very complex methodology and stuff, but it has very important policy implications, you don't always lead with the, the typical way a scientific paper is written well. Oh, I've got my background and my methods, and my here's how my analysis plan was. Because a policymaker is just going to their eyes are going to glaze over. It's like fine. You have to distill it to its most important essence, and then you know the details will follow, and they're there, and they're if they're valid, they you know are going to matter. But um, in a kind of catch the eye, and the mind will follow is. sort of mm -hmm. thing, but with words rather yeah. than with images, mm -hmm. with what you do. That's interesting. Yeah. So um, another thing that I, I, I noticed on your website was Lab Rats, the, uh, the one panel webcomic series. Um, beyond the theme of observations of a laboratory scientist, it takes the perspective of actual lab rats. I actually, I really like the ones that show the, um, the overuse of the label maker or um, how you shouldn't eat where you do science. Uh, how did that come about? Um, it was, it all started in my PhD. Um, I, at the beginning, I wasn't very organized. And so I would do one thing and I would wait until that one thing had happened. And then I would go and do it. And so there were lots of me kind of sitting around for five minutes here and there. Whereas now, you know, if I were in the lab, I'd, I'd intercalate things more. But I ended up with lots of five minute incubation steps and uh, it was enough time to draw something on the on the yep. whiteboard in the lab while I was a bit bored and the lab was around me. So I drew that and it, mm -hmm. it just kind of grew from there as a almost every day, um, at least once a week for the entirety of my PhD, but sometimes every day. Yeah. And my lab mates and even the cleaners would follow them. So that was kind of fun. Oh, that is awesome. That. that is awesome. The, the lab rats themselves in the comic are, are, are very sympathetic. You feel for them. They're 
like, oh gosh. But at the same, like you're rooting for them, but at the same time, they're just more or less like um, depictions of a, of a of a silly situation. Mm-hmm. But I'm just like, oh, you guys, like the one with the sunburn, Aww. because they've. <laughs> I was like, oh, you poor little rat. So, so sometimes the thing I like about them is because they can be actual lab rats, they can be a PhD student, a researcher, yep. mm-hmm. they can make mm-hmm. comments on academia and on research, but they can also just be silly. You know, a lot of it right. is, oh, if you weren't a scientist, what would you use this bit of equipment for? And, uh, and so mm-hmm. I've tried to take things from there. And that's, that's I, I call that in my head lab rat antics. Um, because in my head, yes. if I was, you know, the the size of my hand, I, I would play in the way that they do. Um, and so it's, yes. it's, it's very freeing <laughs> to, to play like that. Yeah. yeah. I think they're, they're really good, um, teaching tools too, because there's some in there, like the very, the very first, uh, one that I saw was obviously the newest one, which is the outlier. Right. Yeah, and I outlier. thought that was great. And I'm like, Oh man, that would have been, you know, having maybe, you know, a bunch of, um, visual representations of different concepts and statistics might have helped me get a better grade in that class. I would have might have enjoyed it a little <laughs> yeah, bit more. Yeah, I may have enjoyed it a little bit more. So, um, That's a very yeah, easy for you to say, of... so thank you very much. Oh, <laughs> no problem. Um, well, besides helping people get better grades, um, why, do you, why do you think that visual representations of science, scientific concepts are so important? Um, because I think to understand, I mean, maybe this is because I am such a visual person, but to understand something, you have to have a theory in your head. And to have a theory in my head, I have to be able to see it. So I have to be able to connect the dots. And sometimes the only way I can do this is just draw it out. I mean, it can be as simple as networks, you know, blob A is connected to blob mm-hmm. B. Um, but uh-huh. even drawing, I mean, I can imagine blob A connected to blob B in my head, but it's much easier if somebody presents me with that because then I don't have to take a leap. And so it's just kind of evolved from that. I think it's, it's really important for understanding of different concepts and, and again, visual analogy being uh-huh. quite key to that. You know, a lot of people don't realize, but when we look at a lot of Leonardo da Vinci's drawings and artwork we we look at them from a very like artistic lens but a lot of them were scientific illustrations because that was that was what he used to help understand the world yeah he's quite the engineer i mean i think about the vitruvian man yeah and how it's like a logo everywhere now Mm -hmm. but he was doing a study of human anatomy Mm -hmm. trying to understand how you know the arms uh, how they relate to the legs, you know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a very visual thing. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's the beginning of all science is observe. You know, you can't make a hypothesis from nowhere. Yep, yep. It's very, very true. So um, how do we how do we go about fixing that terrible Krebs cycle diagram that we see in every uh, biochemistry <laughs> oh my textbook? Gosh, it's so complicated. <laughs> Run away screaming. Uh... Oh my gosh. Yeah. You either die instantly from boredom or you just want to change careers because you, you they basically force you to like cram blunt memorization into your head. And then yep. the second you take the test, you forget it. I I actually drew a giant version of it when I was studying that. Um, I had glycolysis, I had the Krebs cycle, and I then had the electron transfer chain. Of course, I can't remember what it looks like now, but back then, 
I had this massive thing on my wall. I even remember the ink. It was orange um, highlights like Biro. And um, and, and so I I followed the electrons as a flow through the process, Uh, you know, from one bond to another. That's kind of how it Mm -hmm. happened in my head. I remember none of this now, but at the time it helped me. <laughs> the process of changes, um, I made it really big, basically. If it's bigger, it's yeah. bigger yeah. somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a complicated cycle, so you need space to be able to, uh, you know, make sure that you have the right kind of detail for, for each um, phase. I think, so, I think every chemist's uh, wet dream would be, you know, uh, being able to actually walk through it. You know, past all these years. Yes. Right. You know, oh VR gosh. for the win. Yes. Oh my! Oh, that's They're such a perfect. good idea. Oh my gosh! Have you? So, in thinking about that, have you thought about, or have you ever like, I don't know, is collaboration in VR maybe in your future? I mean, I know you do a lot of just like two D illustration, but that would be Ooh. so cool. I I am talking like. to a company called Nano Simbox. Well, the company is called Interactive Science, and they have a platform called Nano Simbox that they're developing. Um, I'm hoping to be involved. With, we'll see. Um, oh, because they're, they're that's so cool. My kind of cross discipline expertise, um, and what they do is all about what you can't see, but they want to make visible. They and they come from a chemistry background and doing uh, nano simulations, so that's quite exciting. Um, but we'll see. You know, yeah, really really cool. Cool. So you just kind of have lots yeah. of pots on the boil. No, gosh, I just I just think about my chemistry class and having something <laughs> like that would have been a really cool. Yep. And B probably game changer for me liking chemistry yeah so. you should totally check it out it's um i mean they have um at the moment they have about three demonstrations of what the technology can do and you as two people you can go in and play catch with a buckyball um and um oh, tie oh, a peptide chain in a knot but you have to do it together. yeah oh. it's very cool and wow the there and you've got these kind of controllers to grab bits but it even works on a sort of Van der Waals force. Um, if you grab a hydrogen, it doesn't oh, go cool. very far. But if you grab an oxygen, it's got more kind of pull. So it is very cool. It's very yeah, geeky, though. So, cool. <laughs> so nice. I mean, it's the sort of thing that would get you yeah, into it, it because you can see it. Right. Um, the focus of our show is public health. And just as it's challenging to imagine how a virus invades a cell or how neurons communicate with each other. It's also difficult to describe how systems and strategies and public health interventions, like think about herd immunity or harm reduction um, and even something like health insurance benefit the public rather than these tiny things that only, you know, a small amount of people have actually seen in real life. Um, or, you know, visualizing these things that are invisible. Um, These things are happening all around us, but over a longer period of time. But essentially, it's still visible. But it's still, yeah, it's, that's kind of, I haven't seen really good visualizations of a lot of public health concepts. Um, And I was just wondering what, what your thoughts on that were. I think um, it's a tricky one because in public health, there's often a message to get across. And so there's a, a sort a of behavior. hierarchy. Yes, or a behavior. Yeah, but there is a kind of uh, a position of knowledge to 
uh, a position of no knowledge that you want to kind of pass the knowledge across. Um, and sometimes it would be, it's actually a collaboration, you know, with the public that really allows that to kind of be concrete, more concrete. Um, in a, I guess I'll explain what I mean with an example because I, I'm very concerned about antimicrobial resistance. Um, yeah. and, you know, antibiotics, we're not going to have them working for very much longer. And for a microbiologist like myself, I see this as an imminent danger to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, but yeah. most people aren't as aware of it as a, as a real problem that's already happening. And so the time that we have to do anything about it is very limited. So I wanted to do a, a kind of a project that involved not using words because this is a global problem. So let's not, mm-hmm. you know, be bound by language. You know, what do you think about antibiotics? Um, what do you, how, when would you use antibiotics? Um, do they you or do they harm you? Um, you know, all these questions. And if you ask these to people and kind of can create something together, you'll make more of an impact. Whereas if you tell them don't take antibiotics when you have a cold, they'll go, they may ignore you. But if you can visually grip them and get them involved in a process that would then have impacts on other people, maybe the message gets further. Does that, that means kind of make? Yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah, and it's a challenge that we've run into um, because it's hard to grasp some of these it's concepts because they take place over long periods of time and they're big, but they are really important. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's very similar to the, um, to vaccinations, you know, polio or, you know, why am I giving my child a hepatitis B shot when that's a sexually transmitted disease? You know, so there's obviously there's other discussions around that, but just trying to get them to understand how vaccines work in the body, why herd immunity is important, you know, it's, uh, although there were some really good old timey illustrations from, um, because they were using the cowpox yeah. uh, as the yeah. initial yeah. vaccinator and of like cows growing out of people's necks and oh elbows and stuff. It's going to happen. You might yeah. just have a cow growing out of your side. Yes. You get this. Well, it, it can go the other way, like with um, GM food, for example. I mean, it's not mm. quite public health, but I remember seeing a lot of kind of Frankenstein food yeah. uh, yes. based on this and it's kind of like well that's not where it's very kind of visually shocking but that's not where the evidence is right so exactly I, I, con- I confess to being guilty of drawing a, a frankenfish uh, <laughs> many times, but um it's not accurate it's not what happens so right yeah right yeah well um finally because we always like to show that our scientists are people too and not just robots or, or lab rats working in the lab. Um, we always like to end our discussions by asking what our guests are reading, watching, or working on that's outside of the field of health and science. So, um, Eliza, what are you currently uh, enjoying? Oh, um, I like to read graphic novels. Um, so yeah. I've, I've, I've read a bunch. Awesome. I mean, often they kind of intersect with science. So I've, I've read a really great uh, graphic novel called Epilepsy. Unfortunately, the name who is by escapes me, but it's about a, uh, a guy's experiences um, with his brother growing up with epilepsy. And it's just it's told in a kind of really interesting way of how his parents kind of when medicine fails, what do they do? And all the fads they have to follow in order to save their son. But none of it. it, it it's just very interesting. Um, 
but you know maybe not so cheery uh, <laughs> but yes i i, I like yeah, i like that the, interesting. the kind of intersect with um words and pictures so yeah i mm-hmm. i love graphic novels basically but awesome yes uh have you heard of trans um, yeah have you heard of transmetropolitan no. Oh, you should read it. It's uh, it's uh, a kind of series of comics by Warren Ellis, and it's kind of a bit like um, Trump, actually. Um, kind of, uh, yeah. It it was written a long time ago, but it's now kind of quite scary how similar it is about a political system in a dystopian future um, where you know you can. It's kind of sci-fi gone nuts. Um, politics oh, and it's, no. just, it's hilarious because people have all sorts of implants you can decide to be a fish for a day you know things like that it's, it's really random uh so it's quite fun um but yeah almost sounds yes. like a black mirror it's like black mirror oh, yes yeah, exactly. yeah. which oh, was man. actually Oh my god! And some of my favorite, um, some of my favorite web comics are like science and history based. Like I really love Hark a Vagrant. Um, like it, that's it's all history, and she is wonderful and hilarious. You would love it. Um, of course, XKCD and uh, PhD mm-hmm. Comics is another good one. But yeah, those are always some. Have of you my have you heard of Surgeon X? No, I'll have to check that one out. It's um. It's, uh, I think a lot of it's on the web now. Um, it's Wellcome Trust funded, um, as an initiative, I think. Um, or at least the kind of primary person is now a welcome person. But Sarah Kenny, um, she developed this thing about an antimicrobial, uh, apocalypse in London, uh, across the world, but in we'll London. It's about what happens out. when you ration antibiotics and there's this oh. certain gone rogue stealing black market antibiotics and stuff and it's kind of like well you know we need to ration the antibiotics because like they're not working otherwise we need stewardship but who who loses out and it's yeah. very it's very gripping and real it's very cool Ooh. yeah we'll have um, to check that yeah, out we'll definitely have to check that out yeah but I, I am i am not just entirely i'm not i'm not, not entirely um uh, obsessed with my antimicrobial apocalypse. Uh, I do mountain <laughs> bike and stuff, and you know, I draw oh, fluffy cartoons, and yeah. Um, so yes, awesome. sometimes I go outside and everything. It's very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, similarly, Quinn and I both uh, rock climb. Uh, Although being in Florida, it's, it's oh, kind of challenging in Florida, but we have rock climbing gyms yeah. where we can practice, and then we can go out to the mountains and take trips. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yes, I love, um, I'm more of a boulderer outside, oh, you know, yeah. without ropes because, um, sport, cl- it scares me a bit because yeah. you get very high. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, so where do you like go climbing? Like that. Where do you go climbing, um, in the UK? Um, a lot of good climbing. Um, there's some in Devon, uh, the sea cliffs, uh, but oh, there's also some really cool trip. boulders. Uh, there's some really cool boulders in the north of Scotland. I went to this place oh, called cool. Glen Lednock, which had like spiky. I mean, my fingerprints disappeared by the end of the day. Oh, but it was beautiful. Oh, spread. Oh. It was this lovely golden light and, and, and heather everywhere and these really gorgeous boulders that were just mm, such good climbing. Oh, that oh, sounds amazing. I want to go. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We're, we're... We definitely, if you ever go to the UK, the Highlands, it's amazing. Mountain. Noted. 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 Yeah, we would love. We would love to go. My husband has been, uh, he really wants to go to the uh, Isle of Skye. So, but we're sport. Yeah, we do a lot more sport climbing. He really wants to get into tr- into trad, which is 
terrifying but um yes i don't have the balls to try <laughs> I know, right? well we're uh me and my wife are going to go sport climbing outside for the first time in a few weeks so we're Yay! we're looking forward to that we've yeah. mostly just done we've just done gym stuff and then a little bit of bouldering so that'll yeah. be fun that'll be great. it's very either... free very yeah. free. it is it really is if you can if you can free your fear <laughs> basically yes. if you can turn yes. your fear off, uh, then yes yeah trust yourself oh my gosh. Well, well what are you enjoying Lindsay? well i so i'm my, well we've been watching stranger things lately so oh. we haven't it's so good we haven't gotten through all of it yet so i'm not gonna like spoil anything no, no, uh, okay. i haven't started the second series yet so I, i'm oh. finishing the expanse first and then yeah Ooh, how is that oh it's good it's kind of they don't explain everything so um you know they're not mm. you're not being talked down to it's not really cheesy but it is kind of, mm-hmm. it's very gripping. And lots of tense, kind nice. of scary alien stuff. And lots of politics Ooh. and crazy sci-fi. That's perfect. That sounds great. And beautiful <laughs> yeah, you know, I, visuals as well, which, of course, I'm, I have a massive soft spot for. So, yeah. Right, yep. right. Yeah. No, um, as far as reading, I just, I finally finished American Gods. So that was very, very good. Awesome. And now I want to watch the series. Mm-hmm. So, there's a series? series. Yeah, yes, there's, there's a TV um, series. Oh, stars. Cool. Network Stars adapted it. And um, Ian McShane plays Mr. Wednesday. And I don't remember the, the actor who they got to play Shadow, but he was very good. That's so cool. And who's um, yeah. Anansi, the Spider-Man? I remember the... the... Oh, oh. Wow, what's his name? I know it. He's actually a, a comedian. Oh, I'm blanking on oh, it. But names. Oh, he was good. Cool. Oh, I'm glad because yeah, you've watched it. Yeah. 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 So, what about you, Quinn? Um, I am reading a book called "The Storm Before the Storm: The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic" by um, Mike Duncan, and it is um, a book about the era of ancient Rome before the, you know, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and, um, you know, that whole conflict that officially ended the Roman Republic. But before then, it really set the stage for all of those events to happen. So it's about that era that's sort of unreported Mm -hmm. on a lot. And I just really wanted to a, read this book, but also B, support Mike Duncan because he did uh, one of my favorite podcasts called The History of Rome. And it was like a hundred and or almost like 200 episodes, 20 minutes oh, wow. each, but they were like little bite-sized chunks to learn the history of, of ancient Rome. And that like really got me super, super into that. It alive. That time. Yeah, it did. So I would highly recommend that. And he's actually now, when he ended the History of Rome podcast, he started um, a new one called Revolutions. And it's all about different political um, and other types of revolutions throughout history. And it's very good. I I really like his, his writing and his narration style is very palatable for people who are like not necessarily PhDs in history. Um, so he breaks down concepts in a really like easy to understand way and describes his sources, but doesn't like list his sources. So he's, he's What's very his good. Name again? I like him a lot. Uh, Mike Duncan. Cool. Check yeah. Out. Yeah. So check that out. 
Yeah, because I'm a big history nerd. But yes. yeah, I've been enjoying that. <laughs> I've been enjoying Stranger Things. Um, yeah, yeah, it's been good. Yeah, a lot of good stuff out now. Yeah, I I feel like we just finished another series, and now I'm blinking on what it was. Um, so Eliza, where can we find out more about what you do? Or if anyone is listening that wants to take a look at your work, um, I know you do commissions. Um, where can people find inf your information? Uh, generally my website, um, lizawolfson.co.uk. Um, but I'm also on Twitter and Instagram as Eliza Coli, Eliza underscore Coli. I, I love that. Super cool. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, E. coli was my first love. I, I worked on enterohemorrhagic. E. coli. Oh, right. so, you know. Um, yeah. Ooh, you bleed from your bum. Scary one. Yeah. <laughs> Not to make light of it. But. We love talking to public health people. We love to talk to these people because they're like, they're just, they love talking about gross stuff. Yeah. Oh, we had a whole episode on poop. We did have a whole oh, episode about poop. have to poop. check that one out. So of course. I mean, because I, I did a lot of work. Yeah. Yes. I used to work on cow bombs, and so, you know, there was, there was poop. Um, <gasps> yeah. Oh. So, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I nice. uh, whenever I work with a bacterium, I, I turn it into a cartoon in my head, and so it has this face, and it's kind of yeah. all like... I love their little, like, monster Yeah, the and lots yeah, of eyes, and yeah, so... Um, I, I, I guess I, I like, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it sounds a bit strange, I like E. coli, enterohemorrhagic E. coli, because in my head it just looks really cool and, and, and gnarly. But obviously mm -hmm. I fear it because, you know, in a fight it would definitely of course. win. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's terrifying. It would definitely win. So, yes. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Oh, goodness. Cool. So, yeah, um, find you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, uh, online. Um, if you want to see uh, Eliza's work, it's it's out there, and it's it's really cool. I like you have a broad variety of of products that you create. You have those very and, and there's a certain style to like uh, a scientific diagram that you would see in a textbook, mm -hmm. and it's almost like I can see it being challenging as as a creative person to you know try to create something, but also have it have that same style that's recognizable to scientists everywhere, but you, you're able to do that, but you're also able to do the kinds of things that you would see on the covers of, um, of magazines or on posters day. and things yes. like that. So yeah, it's, you know, I, well, we, we really admire your work and yes. we're really glad oh, you were able to, to talk with us today. Thanks for putting oh, up with no our worries. technical issues. Yes. And I, I really hope or I'll I'll definitely be on the lookout to see if your oh, VR yeah, project yeah. gets off the ground because that's really yeah. cool. I'll keep you posted. That'll be awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us. It's been and, great. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah. Keep on drawing. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Today's public health fact: Escherichia coli, or E. coli for short, was identified in 1885 when German pediatrician Theodor Escherich first described the bacteria. These rod-shaped bacteria, common throughout the digestive system and usually benign, keep disease-causing bacteria from taking over. However, the 0157H7 strain is far from benign. It's a particular problem in red meat, especially hamburger. Its symptoms are bloody diarrhea and fierce abdominal cramps. Many patients describe the pain as so severe that it feels like a hot poker is searing their insides. So remember to fully cook your burgers, y'all. 
Thanks for listening to Viral, a show where we talk about bloody diarrhea and other things. The show is produced by yours truly, Quinn Lundquist and Lindsay Grove. Special thanks to Dr. Eliza Wolfson for joining us today. Review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook for more public health news and trivia. And one last thing, as always, please remember to wash your hands. <laughs>